Hey everyone, welcome back to part two of our very special two-part episode of Hell and High Water with my guest and friend, Chris Matthews, author of This Country, My Life in Politics and History. I kind of thought we were going to end up doing a two-part episode with Chris because we hadn't talked for so long and because there was so much to talk about. And the other thing is that, you know, we've been doing a bunch of two-part episodes on this podcast and, you know, we were worried for a little while that people wouldn't stick around or come back for part two, but it turns out like y'all are great listeners. And I guess when we get into a conversation that goes long, maybe you guys find it as interesting as we do because it turns out we look at the numbers and people stick around and seem to like the two-part episode. So when it calls for it and when the conversation is interesting, we're going to do them. And this is one that definitely fell into that category. So we're here with part two of the Matthews Talkathon. In part one, we talked about a lot of stuff going on in politics right now. And then we talked about some stuff that hasn't gone on for a long time. We took a deep dive into Chris's book and talked about his history and politics and media and stuff that had gone on in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and all the way up into the 90s. And we got ourselves right up to the precipice, literally the precipice of the Trump era and decided to end part one there and then come back for part two with this episode right here. So we're picking up with Trump staring into the abyss uh, as he runs for president in 2016. Donald Trump had been on Hardball. I wouldn't say he was a regular guest, but he popped up on Hardball off and on over the course of the first 15 years of the program, he would come on and he was a good guest. And the same reason that Howard Stern liked having Trump on uh, his show, Chris Matthews liked having him on the show. He was candid and it was good television, said controversial things, said impolitic things. You know, he was funny. He didn't give a shit. He said stuff that you didn't hear normally on political cable. So Chris took advantage of that and interviewed Trump a fair amount. But then comes 2016 when Trump finally, after flirting with running for president for, for many years, suddenly actually gets in the race and the attitude of the host changes because now Donald Trump is running for the highest office in the land. And I got to say, it was not a great idea to go on hardball and not come correct, not know what you were talking about, because Chris did not hesitate to fold, spindle, and mutilate guests who came on not knowing their shit. And if he sensed that they were factually unprepared or intellectually inconsistent, he would jump on that unpreparedness and those inconsistencies like a dog on a bone. And a lot of people got ripped to shreds on hardball if they didn't know what they were talking about. If you were an idiot, Chris would show that you were idiotic. And this was the case with Donald Trump, who had managed to dominate the Republican race for the nomination without really knowing shit about shit. And one of the trickiest issues, especially if you haven't really given it much thought, is abortion. And you could see in this interview we're about to play You could sort of see that Chris Matthews had watched Trump go through this nomination fight with this new position he'd adopted. He was now pro-life, having been pro-choice his entire life in private life. And a lot of people thought that Trump was just making this up because he knew you had to be pro-life to win the Republican nomination. And the sense that Chris had been waiting for a long time to get Trump in the crosshairs on this, you can really feel it and see it in this interview. This is a master class in confrontational interviewing and also one that revealed just how thoroughly unprepared and absent any kind of having struggled with or wrestled with or contemplated the complexities of the moral and political dimensions of the abortion question. So here's the interview we're going to play. It's going to kick off our second part of our episode here with Chris Matthews. We're going to start on the Trump era. Donald Trump running in the Republican primary in Wisconsin in 2016. They're at a town hall meeting and the question on the table put to Donald Trump is his position on abortion. 
Well, look, I mean, I'm, as you know, I'm pro-life, right? I think you know that. Um, and uh, I, with exceptions, with the three exceptions, but uh, pretty much that's my stance. Is that okay? You understand? What should, what should, we, what the, what should the law be on abortion? Well, I, I, I have been pro-life. I've so, never understood the pro-life position. Well, I never understood it because I understand the principle. Understand. It's human life as people see it. Well, what it crime? What, well, what crime is it? Well, it's human life. No, well, should the woman be punished for having an abortion? Uh, look, uh, this uh, is not something you can dodge. It's a, if no, you no, say it's, it's abortion not, is a not, crime or abortion is murder, you have to deal with it under the law. Should abortion be punished? Well, people in certain parts of the Republican Party and conservative Republicans would say yes, they should be punished. How about you? Uh, I would say that it's a very serious problem, and it's a problem that we have to decide on. Uh, it's, it's very hard. But you're I mean, for are banning you it. Say, well, wait, are you going to say put them in jail? Are you, is that well, the Well, no, I'm asking you, because you say you want to ban it. What's I, that I mean? Would, I am against, I am pro-life, yes. What is ban, how do you ban abortion? How do you actually do it? Uh, well, you know, you'll go back to a, a position like they had, where people will perhaps go to illegal places, yeah. but you have to ban it. You running for president of the United States will be chief executive of the United States. Do you Believe no, but, but in do you believe in punishment for abortion? Yes or no? Is a principle. Uh, the answer is that there has to be some form of punishment for the woman. Yeah, there has to be some form. Ten no, cents, ten years. I don't what? know. That I don't know. So, man, like you think about all of the people who've interviewed Trump and done such a terrible job of trying to ever pin him down on anything. I include myself here. Very hard guy to interview. Very good at, at filibustering. Very good at being evasive. Very good at being elusive. And you basically got Donald Trump. Obviously, a guy who did not really know what he thought about this issue and didn't really have a position yeah. in that interrogation, got Donald Trump to basically say that abortion should be made illegal and that a woman who had an abortion should be, she never said thrown in jail, but that she should be punished. The woman should be punished if she has an abortion. Extraordinary thing, Chris. It's extraordinary. Yeah, I know. Interview. A couple of hours later, he weaseled out of it, but everybody knew what he said. You know, in all fairness, what I was trying to do was get to the heart of what I consider the dishonesty of the pro-life movement. And that's in the sense that Although I'm putting him on the, the skittle and I'm making him ask the question. I could do that bishops, archbishops around the country. I did it with one archbishop. He got so mad at me. I said, you don't like Patrick Kennedy's legislative position on abortion. What's yours, Your Excellency? What is your legislative position on abortion? What should we do to women who choose to have a termination of their pregnancy? What should we do the, under the law? And they completely weasel out. They completely weasel out. They use words like murder and killing. And all. Okay, you can use those terms. But what do you mean in the legal context? And my answer to him was he was after me as a Catholic. And I said, where you said you should be with your church. I said, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. The church sets doctrinal positions. They, they have a teaching authority. I accept the teaching authority of my church on moral issues. But writing the law is the job of legislators. And if you're running for a position at the President of the United States, you better damn well have a position on what the law should be. And a lot of these guys and women, some, I guess, pro-life women, don't have an answer because it's right. really all about posturing. Right. We don't like abortion, and I don't like it either. We don't think it should be as common as this. I don't either, but I don't care. And it's not that I don't care. I do care. It's the law you have to write, and it's right. tough. Yeah. But I've been for... Roe v. Wade, since before I ran for Congress, I supported back in 1973 when it came out, that decision, because in the end, it isn't a perfect solution to the problems of mankind and morality about ab abortion, but it is the best possible position for a free society to write, to take. You right. know, it was a political decision, but the trimester system made sense. 
It still does. And if it gets refined, it gets refined, but no undue burden. It's up to the individual. You know, I think people ought to think through the thing more than they do. But I, yeah. I like a country in which we debate these things, these moral issues. I think it's very healthy we debate them. Sure. I think we have the right results so far. But Trump was a fraud. Right. And by the way, did you hear him when he went meandering off there talking about how the back alley abortions were prominent? He yeah. knew that argument, too. Yeah. He thought yeah, sure. himself making the, the sure. pro-choice argument. And he didn't even know. And then he said, better stop that and get back yeah. into this crazy world. He doesn't know. What so he was a fraud and a lot of other things, too. In some ways, what now seems like it was sort of shocking that Trump ever became the Republican nominee. And then in some other ways, given the way that the party has evolved, was in some weird way inevitable that someone like Trump would eventually lead it as it's heading down this path towards autocracy, which we'll talk about a little bit more yeah. a little later in the podcast. But here's my real question from this context of the book. I, I just mentioned these four presidents, right? The last four prior to Biden, you got Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama, and then Donald Trump. Your book is called This Country. Can you just explain how that could be? Those four guys in a row? I mean, I, I struggle with it. How can the same country have had in the space of those years have had Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump. Like, what does that say about the country? What's the theory of the case that explains how those four guys with the differences among them and between them, how we ended up with those four? Well, maybe the ones who at the time they ran were best able to connect with the middle of the country. And Bill Clinton was able to, to beat George Bush in a very narrow race where he basically benefited from Ross Perot very close race and you take away Perot. Very close race, obviously, in, in 2000. Incredibly close, 600,000 or something. I think that Obama benefited from the fact that Iraq War had turned off many, many people by then. And they thought they wanted a president a little more intellectual than the one we had. I think it comes down to W could connect the people. Bill Clinton could connect the people. Barack Obama could connect with our, our romance about this country, that we could elect the black president. He did think we could unite the country. He did. His best speech was still 2004 about uniting the country. And that meant a lot to African-Americans, too. And you hear, I said Philly one time in North Philly, and Barack Obama spoke to a tough old neighbor. You know, it's right near Temple. You know that neighborhood. Yeah, it's yeah. tough. Yeah. It's where a lot of the poor people from the South migrated to in the 50s and 60s. It's not much better now, a little better. The biggest applause line for Barack Obama at nine o'clock that Saturday morning was unity, not welfare, not anything else, not government, unity of the country. We could come together. They wanted to be included in this country as full citizens. I mean, that's still the romance of America, equality and acceptance. And so and then I think Trump was able to play on another piece of that middle, which is the resentment of the elite, the sense that there are people out there who do think we're deplorable, who, who look down on us because we didn't get to college who think they're better than us and smirk about it. And that sense of ugly elitism. A friend of mine I had dinner with last week, who didn't know any Trump people. I mean, it's yeah. so true. I got three brothers who voted for him the first time and two the second time. I know there are Trump voters that are sane. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's that sense of looking down on people. The American people, it's all the truism there is. We do not like being talked down to. We are not a British our class decided it's one to put up with that crap. You look down on somebody, you've lost them. You've lost them. And it should be that. When Obama did the same thing with clinging to their guns and religion, right. the playing to the elite liberals up on Knob Hill in San right. Francisco. And Gary Hart made the same mistake talking to people, a gay group down in LA, remember? Yes. Oh, sure. yeah. yeah. I, I'm not doing solid waste dumps in New Jersey. And my yeah. dad heard that and said, 
I choose to live in New Jersey. I chose yeah. to move here. Yeah. And this guy's making fun of my state. So I think that condescension is not a good look in presidential politics. I want to ask you one last question about your time in the chair, as they say. But if you think back on the whole arc of your career, you think about the various aspects of it, you know, as I said before, the Hill and the inside the White House, and then as a writer, as an author, as a columnist, as a commentator, as a television host, I still miss more than anything the Chris Matthews show, the Sunday show is still my, I still prefer the Sunday show, you know, a little more time to think and say stuff, but there are, you yeah. did it all, man. You, you covered it from every angle. It's an st- insane question to ask, but like, as you look back on it all, what do you take as like, here's what I really know now about American politics? Well, the personal answer is what I'm proudest of. You didn't exactly ask that question, but it's part of the answer. answer. Yeah. It's writing like yeah. you. Yeah. It's hard. It's really hard to get your head around a piece. And when you do it on a magic day, and just knock it out. You go, God, how do I do that? Most of the time you have to struggle. It's a lot harder than being on television. And so I'm proud of the fact that most of my life from writing speeches to writing comms to working on the shows, the written part of the shows, I'm proudest of the fact that I made a living writing. You know, people say, yeah, Matthew, she had all that money from TV. Well, that's right. But I wouldn't have had any of it without the writing. Right. The romance of the country is that uh, because I knew all the flaws. Somebody just wrote a big, wonderful review of my book, the new book in 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 the Canadian policy magazine. They said I was the quintessential American because I knew all the flaws, but I had tremendous hope for the country and undiminished hope for the country. You know, with all our race history, which is horrendous and maybe worse than we've ever seen represented to us, like in a movie, you've never seen real slavery until the last 20 years. What it's really like to beat people up and treat women like yeah. things. I think we know that we can improve. And the wonder of the Declaration of Independence and, and the wonder of it written by a slaveholder and still it's the gold standard. And, and Barbara Jordan said, I, I want the American that we promised to have. The, the one that we wanted. Yeah. And I do love about us that we argue about abortion. I love the fact that we say the moral issues are important to our arguments. And it is not just about today and what we want to do. It's also about what we value, life, yeah. liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that we have the kind of arguments you'd have in a very religious setting. You'd argue about these things. And I think that's what this country is about. I think to F. Scott Fitzgerald said, France is a land and England is a people, but we're about an idea. Yeah. America is about an idea. I mean, it's true. Not only it's not, it doesn't just sound good. It's actually true. No. Yes, it is. And it's funny that if you scrape away all the celebrity and you scrape away all the politics and the polarization, the bitterness and the bad faith and all the bullshit, the truth is there are a bunch of big ideas that are animating a lot of these discussions, part of why they're so passionate and why they matter so much. I got to believe when these politicians quit, when they finally reach the end, where they get defeated for reelection finally, or And that's always the noble part of politics, the concession speech, where you talk to the people that you let down. Right. I remember my first boss, Frank Moss of Utah, the last liberal from Utah. And he was Mormon. He's a liberal. And he looked at my face down in the crowd and he said, but you've worked so hard for me. He was thinking about us. Yeah. And there's Ed Brooke up in Massachusetts. I didn't cry in the mountain. I won't cry in the valley. I mean, Adlai Stevenson said, I'm too old to cry, but it hurts too much to laugh. I love it when they get out there and just lay it on the line and say, I damn it, I lost. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but I'm here and I'm honest and you're good people. Thank you for voting for me. And and Trump robbed us even of that. They're often at their best in their concession speeches and Trump did. Why couldn't rob- he do it? Why wow. couldn't he just I won a big one? I pulled an upset in sixteen. I may be back again, but it was yeah. a close call. I congratulate Joe Biden. He's a good guy. 
Right. We'll make it in this country. We're going to make it. Well, yeah, yeah. It would have been great if Trump had done that, but he did not do that. Not only did he do the opposite of that, he did something way more insidious, you know, launching the big lie and sending us barreling down the tracks into this fucked up place where we now live with tens of millions of Republicans who think that Joe Biden is not the legitimate president of the United States. It's a good place for us to take a break. Uh, because the implications of all of that hang over our politics now and may hang over our politics for many years to come. So let's play some ads and we'll come back on the other side and talk about Donald Trump, the insurrection, what happened on January 6th, what it means for our country, where we're headed, and whether it is as scary as I am all but certain that it is. We'll talk about it all after this break here on Hell and High Water. And we are back on Hell and High Water with my friend Chris Matthews, author of big, sweeping new memoir, This Country, My Life in Politics and History. It is so good. And a lot of people don't know that you were a Capitol Hill police officer. And I've heard your reactions to what happened on January 6th. We've seen the, the horrific experience that these Capitol Hill cops and the Metro cops who were there on January 6th, what they've gone through. I've seen you react to some of it in other settings and I want to talk about it now. So we're going to play some sound. Someone not a Capitol Hill police officer, but a D.C. Metropolitan police officer. We've all come to know him. Uh, he's on the cover of Time magazine, Michael Fanone. Let's listen to Michael Fanone testifying to Congress about his experience in the first hearing for this House Select Committee on the January 6th insurrection and what happened afterwards. Let's listen to it here. Michael Fanone. I feel like I went to hell and back to protect them and the people in this room. But too many are now telling me that hell doesn't exist or that hell actually wasn't that bad. The indifference shown to my colleagues is disgraceful. Being an officer, you know your life is at risk whenever you walk out the door, even if you don't expect otherwise law-abiding citizens to take up arms against you. But nothing, truly nothing, has prepared me to address those elected members of our government who continue to deny the events of that day. And in doing so, betray their oath of office. So that was Fanon, right? DC Metro officer dragged down the Capitol steps, tased, beaten by rioters, afraid in the moment that he would be killed with his own gun, begging for his life, telling these treasonous, riotous insurrectionists that he has a child. We've heard this story um, we've not only heard the story, but we've we've seen the body cam footage from the camera on his body. It's like some of the most traumatic and compelling evidence of any crime I've ever seen in my life covering politics or anything else. And every time you hear him talk about it, every time you hear any aspect of it, it's horrifying. Uh, I think it should be horrifying to any sentient being listening to Michael Fanon and his fellow officers about what they went through on January 6th, horrified, also humble and grateful for the sacrifices and for their service. And then you realize it's not the case that every sentient human being shares that point of view. You listen to the fact that there are lots of other reactions that have come forward on Fox News, on Newsmax, on OAN, from Republican members of Congress, from the former president himself, and they are not sympathetic and they are not horrified and they are not humane. And in a lot of ways, this voicemail I'm about to play left for Michael Fanone right after his Capitol Hill testimony sort of sums up the spirit of all of those people who hear about his experience and don't feel the way I feel and the way that I think every morally 
sane sentient human being should feel. As a warning, there's some really disgusting language coming up, and I wouldn't play it normally except for it proves a point. So let's listen to this voicemail left from Michael Fanone. Yeah, this is from Michael Fanone, Metropolitan Police Officer. You're on trial right now. Lying and uh, you want an Emmy, an Oscar? What are you trying to go for here? You're so full of shit, you little faggot fucker. You're a little pussy, man. I can slap you up the side of your head with a backhand and knock you out, you little faggot. You're a punk faggot. You're a lying fuck. Chris, explain that to me, man. How can anybody listen to these police officers who put their lives on the line for the sake of the building, what it symbolizes for our democracy, for the people with inside of it in the middle of a riot and insurrection. These people have been traumatized. Now four of them have killed themselves on the basis of what they went through. Ugh. I mean, I know the answer is, you know, a racist. Okay, whatever. Just, hard, but what, what, explain how this can be that these people are not oh, just okay, yeah, I, uniform I cop, heroes. I was a cop 50 years ago when there was a similar division in the country over the Vietnam War. It was the long hairs versus the hard hats. And the cops, a lot of them were with the... Uh, pro-war crowd culturally they're west virginia guys they were double dippers they had been in an mp they had been military police they're going back for a second income of eight thousand dollars a year for their families I, I had one guy leroy taylor from west virginia he was always talking about the smoke he was going to deliver he's going to use his i don't know his flamethrower on somebody he was a real military guy and maybe a little deranged but you know what he said to me one time he he called me aside i was the college kid and he goes you know why the little man loves this country? And I said, Wayne, he said, it's because it's always God. He was trying to explain to me why a, a nobody from West Virginia, a guy who didn't have a big family and money and houses and anything, that didn't have all that stuff that the rich have, and why he would love his country more than anything. He was trying to help me in a way that people in America don't want to help each other anymore, understand each other. And there's also a cop that said to me, I'd die for this building. He said, I wouldn't die for that, that riverboat down the street, of course. He meant the White House. But these guys were, I, I can only project and say, although it's 50 years later, that when they saw in the eyes of those people out there, you know, some crazy lunatics with horns on, but a lot of them looked familiar to them. That They looked like the people they go home to at night, you know, they're in church with, and they go, my people are coming at me. I'm a working class guy and my people are coming at me, working class white people. They have hatred in their eyes. They're trying to poke things into my eyes. They're trying to kill me. They're poking the flag into me. They're, they're really trying to hurt me personally. And they're calling me a sellout and saying, I'm just doing this for money. I, I think the torture, the moral and mental torture of these people, I don't know anything about psychiatry, but they weren't facing the empire of Japan or the Nazis, they weren't facing communists. They were facing people that they may have voted like, Yeah, you know, saying they want to beat them up and hurt them and make them, you know, hurt them permanently. I, I don't know what that would be like for three or four hours. Right. And uh, they weren't ready for this. And right. uh, Trump did this. Yeah. Trump did it. If he had any conscience at all, he'd be miserable right now. That testimony from that body camera was the strongest thing I've ever heard in politics. Right. Because it was indisputable. It wasn't yeah. for prime time. It was what's recorded on a cop's body camera. And his voice of agony being tortured. I felt sorry for the guy, empathized with him. I was thinking, my God, he's doing this. He's taking this mm. stuff. Yeah. 
And uh, he's doing it for hours. They were pulling people out of line. He just couldn't do it anymore. I mean, I wish we had seen those cameras the first day. All we saw was the guy moving the barrier and they tried to make like the cops were in cahoots. Right. That was bad reporting, but it's all people had at the time. But then we saw it from the defenders of the Capitol's point of view. And what did they think those guys were going to do when they got in there? Graffiti the place? Yeah. I think that's what I think would have considered they would do. They didn't graffiti the place. What did they, they have gotten a hold of Mike Pence? Does anybody thought through? Yes. What would they do? Tar and feather him? Well, they didn't have any tar or feathers on them. Were they going to mm-hmm. spit on the guy? Dump on him? What are they going to do to the guy? Make fun of him? Remember they had their handcuffed, their plastic yeah. handcuffs thing? What were they going to do with him? What were they going to do with Pelosi? I mean, I or, think uh, we... McCarthy. I mean, I don't think anybody's thought this through. And the reason we don't know is cops saved these people. Yes, right. The Metropolitan Police came in to help. I worked in that hill for 15 years. I was a cop. I used to check those doors at night. I'd walk around and protect the, uh, the crypt. I remember one night sitting in the rotunda just trying to imagine Jack Kennedy's coffin being there all alone. I've been around that building all the time. I always took people to the British stairs to show them where the bullet holes were from 1812, where the British fought their way in. It is a cathedral of democracy. It's where people have been coming elected officials since the 1790s because the people elected them. They're not them. They're the elected people's representatives. It's our cathedral of democracy. And these people came in there to do what? And they only wanted to know what they're doing that day was Donald Trump. You, you know, you've talked about this now, as we all have, those of us who get to go on TV and talk about this. You know, you talk about how the Capitol was desecrated. You've talked about how the, the insurrection got to your heart. You have the normal human reaction to this, not the one of that guy in that voicemail. You know, you said it was another quote. You said it was like seeing your church invaded, saying you felt violated by the Capitol attack. Those are all the right things to say. And they're the things that I think a lot of people felt. It is amazing to me that, that it's not just like one crazy person on a voicemail, right? It, and it's part of this larger thing, the larger thing being tens of millions of people who believe that Joe Biden is not the legitimate president of the United States. Two thirds of the Republican Party yesterday. Yeah. Two thirds. So, yeah, two thirds. Right. I mean, I'm as boggled by that as you are. And I, you got to wonder, it's like, you know, there's, not, there's no mystery about where this comes from. There are two thirds of the Republican Party wouldn't think that this election was illegitimate if it wasn't for the fact that Donald Trump has told them over and over again that the election was going to be rigged and the election was going to be bogus. And he told them before the election happened because he knew he was going to lose. And then he told them over and over again after. And then it also gets amplified and reinforced by these news media outlets, Fox News, the conservative echo chamber, the amplification of this bullshit on the right that says that this alternative set of claims about what happened, none of which have any basis in reality, aka the big lie, that they're like, no, that's the truth. I want to talk about all of that some more. Uh, Man, fucking depressing. Let's take a break. Uh, we'll come back and talk about it, sell some soap flakes, and we'll talk to Chris Matthews some more on the other side of the break on Hell on High Water. And so we're back for part three, part three of part two of this epic two-part episode of Hell on High Water with Chris Matthews, my friend. And the author of the book, This Country, My Life in Politics and History. Before the break, we were talking about the big lie and why such a huge percentage of, of Republicans believe it to be true. And I want to listen to a couple of clips on this point. The first is from Donald Trump himself talking to Maria Bartiromo about January 6th. 
There was such love at that rally. You had over a million people there. They were there for one reason, the rigged election. They felt the election was rigged. That's why they were there. And they were peaceful people. These were great people. The crowd was unbelievable. And I mentioned the word love, the love, the love in the air. I've never seen anything like it. So there's Trump. Okay, now let's see the most powerful man on Fox News now, Tucker Carlson. People say he might run for president one day. Play Tucker. Who did shoot Ashley Babbitt? And why don't we know? Are anonymous federal agents now allowed to kill unarmed women who protest the regime? That's okay now? No, it's not okay. It'll never be okay. And speaking of January 6th, why are there still so many things, basic factual matters that we don't understand about that day? Why is the Biden administration preventing us from knowing? Why is the administration still hiding more than 10,000 hours of surveillance tape from the U.S. Capitol on January 6th? What could possibly be the reason for that? Even as they call for more openness, we need to get to the bottom of it. We just played Donald Trump and his characterization, which is no longer just, hey, the Capitol insurrection wasn't really an insurrection. It wasn't a very big deal. His thing is now it was like a glorious cause. This is a positive thing that happened. Tucker Carlson spinning his conspiracy theories. I could play a Laurie Ingram who basically said that the Capitol cops uh, like Fanon were crisis actors there. She was giving out awards on television that night saying the best supporting actor by a police officer faking his injuries. You know, she does that whole thing, right? That's Laurie Ingram. Ron Johnson doing the same thing as Trump. And now is like the FBI knew about it. The FBI was in on it, right? I, I could play these clips all day, but it's not just Trump. It's now large chunks of the United States Senate. Republicans, all these cable news anchors on Fox News primarily, but also on OAN and, and Newsmax. And there's this whole constellation now, Chris, of people who have, even though this is the most photographed event in, in recent history, we've got thousands of hours of body cam footage. We all can see exactly what happened there, that a violent insurrection, people trying to stop the peaceful transfer of power took place. Cops were assaulted. People beat each other with hockey sticks and, and American flags. It's all there. It's that there's no dispute about what happened. And yet the former president of the United States, you elected members of the Senate and the Republican Party and some of the most powerful people on television go on every night and tell us, don't believe your eyes. It was a day at the beach or it was a glorious fight for freedom. And the Biden administration's covering stuff up and the FBI was in on it. The peddling of conspiracy theories and and, and delusional fabulism now has a giant chunk of the Republican parties in its grip, you know, sat over on your desk and watched it happen on your competitors at Fox news. You watched all this evolve. How did we get here? How did this happen? How do we get to this point where it's this bad? And what does it mean for the future that all of it wouldn't matter to me if it wasn't for the fact that two thirds of the Republican party believes Joe Biden's illegitimate. There's a big, large audience who completely believes all this bullshit and it's not just bullshit, it's dangerous bullshit. How do we get here and where are we going? I just, yeah, I need your perspective. Well, uh, you can't do it logically because so if I said Rome is the capital of Italy and, and then Trump would say, well, it's not. And then Trump would say, there are some people who feel that Rome is not the capital of Italy. There's some who feel that. Well, one of the reasons that they feel that is because you told them that. And he said that day, there's some people rallying on January 6th felt that it wasn't a fair election. They didn't feel there was a fair election because any other reason that you said it was. You said it. If you'd conceded, if you'd accepted the reality of the voter that you lost by 7 million votes and lost the electric college, they wouldn't be saying it. Not any more than a couple percentage, but there's 30 some and two thirds down the Republican Party and who say that you were robbed because you said you were robbed. 
people don't get their shots today. They're, they're anti-vaxxers because, because they were told, well, that has something to do with years ago experimentation on African-American men. Well, that could be there. That could be a reason. But you throw in broadcasters who say you should check with your doctor before you get the shots. In other words, there's something here that has to be looked out for. You have to be careful. You have to check with your doctor mm. to take this. What? No, you don't have to check with your doctor. You should get a fax if it's free. You don't have to go to your doctor. They're giving them out. You know that word in politics called trimming? Mm. Yeah. Trimming Hedging. is when yeah. you said, what do you think of Joe Smith? Well, I don't know. Sometimes that's trimming. You don't say he's a son of a bitch. You just say, I don't know about that guy. Yeah. And that, that, that puts the guy in jeopardy with his reputation. And you've done it. You have done it. It's trimming. And Trump is always trimming. And these people on broadcast, they're basically lying. You know, the hardworking AP reporter, the hardworking reporter on our networks you and I have been associated with, they don't make the big bucks. The big bucks goes to the show people to put on a show. And increasingly putting on a show on television politics is to be extreme and uh, to be provocative every night. And just like the demagogue has to outdo himself or herself every day, you have to be more demagogic the next day than the day before, because otherwise right. you become boring. Yeah. So they keep getting more dramatic in their. I wish I could explain why people pay money, why people make millions of dollars to lie. But we also know that the polarization of the country is so complete now that if I say neither, you say neither. And if you don't say neither, then why are you on the air? In other words, what's your purpose in being? Oh, my purpose is to say neither. My purpose is to say don't get vaccinated. My purpose is to say he didn't win the election. My purpose is to say the opposite of what most people think. Ugh. You know, I don't know the answer. I just know what's happening. Right. Look, I see success. It's usually based upon what the Hollywood Reporter re reports about your salary. Right. That's usually what <laughs> defines success in yeah. cable, unfortunately. And uh, that's what's happened. But I ask you a straight up question here, right? So- you know, it's not like a, if you went back 10 years ago, probably you and I, we would both say, you know, Fox News was for a period of time. Fox News was a conservative news network. They were reliably conservative. We said a partisan media. There's, you know, MSNBC is liberal in the primetime hours. Fox News is conservative. Then it was like, well, they weren't really conservative. They were radical. Right. Then they became state media during Trump. Now we're in this different world. Right. We had an insurrection. We had a riot at the Capitol. We had that thing happened. And I, I just find it hard in the middle of listening to, of given the stakes that I think, and I'm going to get to that in a second, what's really at stake here, but given the stakes now and that we are in a new world, nothing like anything we've ever seen in, in our domestic politics before in this post-Trump era, I just look at those guys, the things they say, the conspiracy theories they support, the lies they tell, the insidiousness of it and the perniciousness of it. And I think it's in a different place now. I look at them and say, this is a dangerous force in America. I can't just say, well, they're the conservative network. Uh, I don't agree with them because they're conservative. They're partisan. It's like they're telling lies about vaccines that are they're going to be directly responsible for people dying or already are. I just think it's different now. And I just wonder whether you agree with that. Do you look at Fox News and say, along with all the others that are further right, you look at them and say, you guys crossed over some line now where it's not your partisan. You're now part of a, a pernicious, anti-democratic movement, a movement that's undermining truth and democratic institutions in America. John, the fact that you have an honest question here tells me how difficult it is to answer. Yeah. Because it's an honest question. It's not just a question for TV or right. podcast. 
It's an honest question. All I can tell is that I know somebody who grew up in a family who are Germans. And long after that war was about anything to do with ideology or anything, the people fought. Why did they fight? Why did a million people die fighting, defending Berlin? When the war was over, the war was over after Stalingrad. It was over. They might have just capitulated and, and got right. the best deal they could. Right. After, when you get into a fight, somebody says something to somebody or shoots somebody, Archbishop Ferdinand, or attacks the wrong ship or has undeclared warfare on submarines. After that starts, the beginning of the war, you're in the war. And once you're in the war, it's about the fight. It's not about the, even slavery even at some point. For those right. Johnny Rebs, those enlisted guys, they didn't have any slaves. Eventually, the fight is about the fight itself. You started it. Screw you. We're going to fight to the death. You're not going to do this to us. And so somewhere in that question you posed to me is the answer. At some point, the battle between the working class whites and, and some better off whites, too, of course, and the liberal media, the liberal establishment, the Democratic Party became a fight, just a fight, pure and simple. It didn't matter what was said on either side. You say this, I say the opposite. Screw you. We're fighting here. We're in a street fight. Right. And so no matter how hideous the claims, it's still the fight. Right. I don't can't stand you Ivy League liberal elitist bastards. I don't care what you say. I'm on the other side. So you tell me Trump's no good. He's the son of a bitch. You tell me all that. You know what? I don't agree because I don't like you. Right. And how else to explain it except it's a fight? You know what I hear from people? Well, there's some questions about the, the <laughs> don't you agree, Chris, there were questions about the 2020 election? <laughs> yeah, you asked them. Of course, there are questions. You keep asking them. There's no evidence. Right. But I don't have a good answer because I think it is. A, I think it's a cliff we've gone over. Right. The cliff has gone from an argument over whether you're pro-life, pro-choice, pro-war, anti-war, dove hawk, conservative, fiscal hawk, non-fiscal hawk. It's gone away from issues. It right. doesn't matter what the issue is, whatever the claim, the Trump people will say he's right. But it, it does lead to a larger question. And it is one that I think there is a this is a personal answer as an observer and someone who's thought about these things, who lived their whole life thinking about politics, living politics in the different ways that you have. So until now, if I asked you this question until post January 6th, I know what the answer would have been to this question. You know, it would have been ludicrous for me to ask you whether you thought American democracy would survive. You know, you would have been like, of course, what are you talking about? Like, what's wrong with you? What are you, what are you high on right now, dude? Like the experiment, experiment has been tested in various ways. And, you know, a lot of it's uh, the injustices have not been fully accounted for or reckoned with. There are a lot of problems with this country, but I'm not worried that we're going to lapse into autocracy. That was never a question. You know, we never had that question in, in the period yeah. that we, you and I have been alive. Well, but I, I guess my question is simply this. Do you agree or do you think it's hyperbolic when people say, what is at stake now going forward in 2022, 2024, whether it's on these questions of voting rights or the 2024 election if Trump runs again or just all of it? Is what's now the fight is the fight between is America going to stay a democratic republic or is it going to become an autocracy? Is that what's at stake now or is that hyperbolic? Well, think of it this way. My answer is that the uh, slogan or the motto over the National Archives is the past is prologue. So I don't think we're in immediate danger of losing our form of government. But what's this we're going through now? What is this a prologue to? If you look to the future and you say, well, it began with this Michael Flynn, the former general saying we should have a military coup like in Myanmar 
It began when a, a huge chunk of the Republican Party said the election was stolen. It began with a president who encouraged a mob attack on the Capitol. Well, that would look like the prologue to some very bad stuff. And I think that's where we're at right now. We're in the prologue part. And I worry. I think you're right. And I think in more specifically, I feel like the 2020 election, which was you know built up to be, I think, was the most important election of our lifetimes, now feels very much like a prologue to me. Like we don't have the end of the story. We don't know whether how, what the outcome of that is. So this is a prologue to something. But it's a dark time, I think. You've always been an optimistic person. And the politics of optimism and hope have always appealed to you, obviously. So when you look around, what do you see as the, as the reasons for hope? What are the things that you look at and think, this is why I think that darkness won't prevail and that why we still have reason to believe that we could end up in an okay place? Well, I think one bit of being a believer in democracy, I think one of the real good hallmarks of our time is the huge turnout in 2020. 81 million for the winner, 74 for the loser, Donald Trump. But what an investment in democracy that was. I think we've missed that story. We, we buried our lead. I want everybody to vote. I want rednecks to vote. I want liberals to vote. I want every ethnic group to vote. I want kids to vote. And I think now we're seeing the stakes are big. And the enthusiasm of the African-American moderates to get out there tells me that everybody's alive politically, not just the AOC people, but the middle's alive and the center left is alive where I'm right. at. Yeah. And I, I think people are alive and they're paying a lot of attention. And the danger, of course, is that the uh, revanchism or revenge weird factor of the, the white diminishing population that fears that they're losing control. That's a problem. But it's in the midst of a big turnout of election of participation, which is a very healthy thing. I would feel, well, if people don't go to church, that's a bad sign for religion. Going to the voting booth is a good sign for democracy. I think that is right. And as long as we can make sure that everybody's still able to vote and that this voting rights problem, if, if we, that's another fight that we have to have. It's a conversation for another day. I mean, we could talk for hours about that too, because man, is that a big fight that, that, that those of us who think that maintaining the democracy is important, it's a pretty important fight to win as you see state after state trying to make it harder for a lot of people to vote and trying to put, <laughs> give control over elections to the kind of people who would have handed the election to Donald Trump, despite the fact that he clearly lost. Chris Matthews, this book, this country, my life in politics and history. And like I said, man, it's great to see you again. I mean, it's been just too long. And you, I, like I say, I, right now, I feel like what I need is retirement. Like I need to spend a year <laughs> the, way you, the way you've spent your last year because you, you look 10 years younger than the last time I saw you. And I, I'm certain that it has something to do with not having to do a daily television show and getting a decent amount of sleep. So congratulations on that. John, you're the greatest. I wish I could spend as much time talking about how great you are as you did for me. You're kind to say so, Chris. Like I said, it's great to get to see you today. It's great to get to your thoughts on all these things. Everybody should go out and buy this book. And Chris, next time you get to New York City, look me up. I'll be there. We'll have dinner at Michael's. Let's do it. <laughs> all right. Take care, brother. Good to see you. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Chris Matthews for being with us on this special two-part episode. If you enjoyed this special two-part episode with Chris Matthews, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Rob Warren and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Jessica Williams checks the facts. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. 